Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who comforts us in the name of Jesus. Amen. In Psalm 130, we pray, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. This reminds us of two things. First, that God forgives sinners. He does not hold on to the sins of his holy ones. He keeps no record of them as as he's collecting evidence for a future prosecution against us. It says he does not mark them. That means he doesn't preserve them, or he doesn't observe them closely and remember them in his heart. He does not stand guard over them as if they were a treasure to him. He keeps no record of them. And for the sake of his son, he forgives sinners. He remembers our sins no more. Secondly, it says he is to be feared because of this forgiveness. He is to both be revered and honored. We are to see him as the one who could punish and destroy, but chooses not to. If he has the power to forgive, he indeed does have the power to punish. And nothing other than divine grace, steadfast love, prevents him from doling out punishment. God would rather forgive sinners than destroy them. And so he is to be feared because of his infinite capacity to forgive. The one who has the ultimate power to forgive and retain sins has the power to kill and make alive again. He has the power to grant or to strip a person of eternal life. That is ultimate. Whoever has the power to forgive sins is to be feared and to love, be loved. This person is to be held in reverence for no other reason than that he frees souls from hell and eternal condemnation. If a man is given this authority, it is a special grace given by God. It should be never held as a light matter that sometimes God grants his expression of his divine power and kingship to men. It should cause us to honor God all the more and to rejoice in his mercy for us that he would allow such a thing to happen. We should be filled with all joy in knowing that God desires us to receive his holy absolution for our sins. He desires it so much that he would actually call men within his church to forgive his Christians. Yes, this is not always our reaction, though. Divine joy, excitement at hearing the words of the absolution as we come together as the body of Christ in his holy church. Often, as we see in our gospel lesson today, Jesus forgives a man... And all those who witness it immediately begin to think evil in their hearts. They do not want to believe that the authority to forgive and retain sins has been given to the Son of Man. They do not want to believe this because they do not want to believe that God has become a man. They do not want to believe that Jesus is the only true and living God. And yet some do. Some do believe. And it blesses them. As we see in our gospel lesson, the paralytic was brought to Jesus. He was carried upon his own bed, 
As this man suffered greatly, he wasn't able to walk. He had been dependent completely in his life upon the charity of others. He couldn't care for himself. He couldn't help himself. He could only receive care. And in this, we see great love demonstrated by this man's friends because there is no greater gift that a person can give a man than to bring him to Jesus. And this is exactly what this man's friends do for him. And certainly, as we see in the other accounts of this lesson in the other Gospels, that they show great faith in the power of Jesus to heal and help this poor man. They can't get, into the, get to Jesus through the door because the crowds around and in the house block their way, so they bring this man to Jesus by making a hole in the roof. They lower him down to Jesus. They will do whatever they can to set this poor afflicted soul before their Savior and their Lord. And Jesus sees this faith. You would think the first thing Jesus would do for the man would say, Hey, get up and walk. Hey, you're better now. But he doesn't. He does not immediately heal this man's bodily ailment. And the question becomes, why? Because Jesus sees that this man needs something more than just the healing of his body. He needs more than his outward afflictions to be fixed. Because when this man comes before Jesus, he comes with a greater burden that must be relieved. And that is the affliction of his conscience. It's the heaviness of his heart. When we think about the pain and sorrow experienced by the paralyzed man who was brought to Jesus, we also must remember the pain that such a disability can place on the human conscience. When we think about the troubles that we experience in this life, it's also very easy to think, uh, such and such is happening to me, God must be mad. God must be angry with me because he's allowed me to be sick. God must be angry with me because he has allowed me to lose this person that I love. God must be angry with me because I have this depression or this weakness or this sickness in my life. Of course, if you don't think this, there will be others who do. Right? We think about the example of Job and his friends. As Job goes through tragedy after tragedy after tragedy, and what do his friends crowd around him and say? What did you do to make God mad? What sin have you committed to bring this disaster upon you and your life? And they formulate reasons in their heads as to why they think any person who's suffering deserves that trouble and hardship. And they will be convinced that you are reaping what you have sown. And they'll say, if only you had done X, or if only you will do Y, then none of this would have happened to you. God would not be punishing you in such a terrible way as it is. You deserve the wrath that's being heaped upon you. It's a very minor extent. There's a kernel of truth to this. Because we're sinners in a fallen world. We don't deserve anything good from God. If we were to build our lives in destiny upon what we deserve, it would be nothing other than trouble or pain and hardship and eventually hell. Who can stand up against the righteous judgments of God? Who can really endure his divine scrutiny? And the answer is no one. We're sinners. 
Every single sin we commit is a sin against God. Every sin invites his wrath upon us. As St. Paul teaches the Colossians, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, because on account of these things the wrath of God is coming. He also says to the Romans, For the wages of sin is death. Yet as we consider ourselves from God by, before God, we can never consider ourselves as objects of pure wrath. We never consider ourselves as objects of destruction and hatred and justice that God pours out on us because of our sins. How could we, considering how good God is to us? He doesn't immediately pour wrath upon, upon us, right? We, we think about the example of Adam and Eve as they fall in the sin. They don't immediately die and find themselves cast into hell. And though they experience a spiritual death and their fall into sin, God quickly revives them with the promise of the Savior. And the same can be said for each of us. While our sins merit us nothing but trouble from God, He's gracious to us. As the Scriptures say, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all good things. This was the paralyzed man's great hope. It was that the grace that God works out for him in Jesus would relieve his heart of the burdens of his sin. This is why he and his friends were so determined to get him to Jesus. They wanted more than just medicine for this man's body. They wanted comfort for an afflicted and persecuted conscience. They desired the forgiveness of sins that Jesus had been preaching. As we see all the way at the very beginning, John the Baptist points out that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when Jesus begins his public preaching ministry, he begins by declaring, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He preached the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In all of this, we have nothing other than the promise that Jesus is redeeming sinners. He's calling those who are afflicted by sin and the effects of sin in this world blessed. He makes them righteous. We often spend so much time in our time reading the Gospels, focusing on the miracles of Jesus, that we forget that most of his ministry was preaching the forgiveness of sins. And we can see that this was the paralyzed man's great hope. As he's brought before Jesus, the Lord said, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And, and the shocking thing that we notice about the paralyzed man and his friends is that this man is content with these words. It's not like he hears the forgiveness that Jesus gives and, and says to him, Oh, that's really nice, Lord, but I'd really like to walk. No, he hears the forgiveness of sins, and it gives him joy. He's content and happy with that proclamation from Christ his Lord that his sins are forgiven him. And this is because the forgiveness of sins gave this man more than functional legs could ever give him. 
gave him a free and pure heart and conscience before his God. With this, the paralyzed man could bear any cross set before him. We think about that as we live as Christians in this world, we are called to bear crosses. Jesus tells his disciples, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For who would ever save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, to be a follower of Jesus means the denial of self. And in that denial of self, it means that often we have to endure sorrow and suffering in this world with the hope and joy that comes from the gospel of Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, St. Paul pleads with the Lord to take away an object of suffering in his life. He calls it the thorn in his flesh. He says, three times I've pleaded with the Lord to take this away from me, and yet the Lord finally answers him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Part of bearing the cross in this life is to be content and joyful with whatever the Lord gives us, knowing that he gives us all things in love and for our good. As we read again in Romans 8, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This means that as we live in Christ, we can regard everything that we receive in this life as a precious gift from God. Not only the things that bring us bodily comfort and the things that bring us bodily pleasure and joy or ease in this life, but the things that bring us tears. Things that bring us pain or struggle and sorrow are to be regarded as activities of a loving and gracious God. And we are free to regard all these things as a good work of God for our sake. And why? Because of how St. Paul begins Romans chapter 8. As he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, we do not see our earthly troubles, pains, and sorrows as a sign that God has condemned us in this life. How could we? The content of the entire Christian faith tells us the exact opposite. It tells us that God loves us so that he would give his only son to die for us. And God, in perfect foreknowledge, has called us out from a world that is perishing under the weight of sin and has given us a place in his eternal and everlasting kingdom. He has drawn this, or done this by sending his Christ into the world to be the sacrificial lamb that pays the price for our sins so that we might be called righteous in his eyes. If our Lord and God did not withhold his Christ from us, how could he do anything other than work everything out to our benefit? All things work for our good. And this is what we see with the paralyzed man. The forgiveness of sins enables him to bear the cross of his bodily affliction. And this is why he's content with Jesus' simple words that say, Take heart, your, sons, your sins are forgiven you. Simple pure forgiveness from the mouth of God. This is why he's content with those simple words. They give him more than just functional legs. 
They give him peace with God. They give him hope for the life to come. They give him strength that is not seen with the human eye. They give him a free and unburdened heart and conscience and is filled with the joy that only Jesus can give. This man is blessed when he hears these words from Jesus because Jesus perceives his faith and gives him exactly what he needs. Yet he perceives other thoughts in the room as well. Because as some hear these words, they are offended. They do not accept or believe that Jesus can actually forgive sins. They say in their hearts, this man is blaspheming. Blasphemy is to speak evil of the Lord God. It it is a sin against the Holy Spirit. As Jesus forgave the sins of the paralytic, and they couldn't believe it, they immediately regard Jesus as a liar and a scoundrel. And why? Because they didn't understand who Jesus is. They would have been fine if Jesus would have just healed the man. But to forgive his sins, that was an offense. Jesus can give the gift of forgiveness because of who he is. He's not just some wise miracle worker. He's more than just a plain old-fashioned prophet. He is the Son of God in human flesh. And when the paralyzed man was lowered down to Jesus, he was brought into the presence of the eternal and living God who created heaven and earth. And this is what all the doubters and onlookers refused to believe. There was no doubt that Jesus was a brilliant teacher. There was no doubt that Jesus could work miracles. There was no doubt that Jesus had this prophetic voice to him. But we created doubt in the hearts of those who questioned Jesus' ability to forgive sins. What was it? They simply couldn't believe that Jesus was their God. And Jesus sees their hearts. He knows what they're thinking, and he calls their thoughts what they truly are. He says they're evil. He says, why do you think evil in your hearts? And this really is the ultimate evil. It is to deny that Jesus is the living God. They accuse Jesus of blasphemy, and in doing so, they commit the ultimate blasphemy. They deny God in the flesh. They deny that God has come down from heaven to forgive sinners. They deny that God has humbled himself to be born of a virgin and to die for the sins of the world. And this is the truest and most terrible sin against the Holy Spirit that could ever happen. It is to deny the Spirit's testimony to the world that Jesus is the Son of God who has died and risen for you. Jesus says, I have come down from heaven. Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. This is the testimony of the Spirit of God to the world. This is the ultimate truth, that the Father loves us by sending his Son into the world to die for sinners. To deny this is an unpardonable sin because it is to deny the fullness of God's love. The loving gift of the Father, the sacrifice of the Son, and the testimony of Holy Spirit all bear witness to the fact that Jesus is God who forgives sinners. Jesus calls the thoughts that deny his divine authority nothing other than pure evil. And that means that these thoughts must be rejected outright. Jesus rebukes them. Not because he's angry, but because he loves them. 
And he wants them to see who he is. He wants them to come to the faith that confesses that Jesus is the God who forgives sinners. And so to demonstrate who he is, for the sake of those who doubt, Jesus says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise up and walk? But you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then says to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. This miracle testifies to a greater reality. The man gets up and he walks. But really, truly, this man has already been healed of a greater sickness. Greater sorrows had already been removed from him. And the good miracle only serves to prove the point that Jesus is who he claims to be. He's the Son of God who takes away our sins. And the fact that Jesus has come down to earth, was made man, and has died to take away the sins of the world changes everything. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, and he extends that authority to his body, the Christian church. And it's strange that we live in a world where there are sometimes Christian church bodies that will embrace miracle workers, men and women who claim the power of prophecy, and those who speak in tongues, but then will scoff when the called and ordained ministers of the gospel say the words, I forgive you, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Very often people fail to understand the full and perfect simplicity of this gift of the gospel. Yet God tells us that he has given the authority to forgive sins to the body of his church. We see this after Jesus rises from the dead as he tells his disciples, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed out on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Jesus has the authority to forgive forgive sinners because he is God in the flesh. And when he takes on flesh, he changes everything. His incarnation instills true divinity, beauty, and dignity in the entire human race. And his death and resurrection atone for the sins of the world. And then he commands that we forgive and retain sins as his body. He lends his divine authority to us so that we can use it to comfort the consciences of those who are afflicted. Afflicted with sin, afflicted with guilt, afflicted with fear, so that they can bear their crosses with faith and joy. We can hear the voice of the pastor say, I forgive you, and know that even as the pastor is speaking, it is the Lord Jesus' word of forgiveness. Jesus seeks to relieve our hearts and our consciences as well. As he fills the days of our life with bountiful grace and love. This is how gracious our God is. As he embeds his church in the world with the authority to forgive sinners so that they may be blessed with the comfort of that forgiveness. As he soothes the afflicted conscience, as he comforts and calms the troubled heart, as he gives joy to the sorrowful and the afflicted and those who are in pain. And how does he do it? With simple words. The simple words that he spoke to the paralyzed man. Be of good cheer. Take heart. Have courage. 
your sins are forgiven you. And with these words, we can bear any cross. We can suffer any affliction. We can endure through this valley of sorrow into the life of the world to come because we know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And every cross that we bear in this life, we can bear with the joy and the knowledge that Christ has died and risen for us, and that God has not withheld any good gift from us as we live under his everlasting care. So take heart, be of good cheer, have courage. Your sins are forgiven. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for blessing us with the words of your absolution. Help us to receive your forgiveness and faith so that as we bear our crosses in this life, we may do so in faith, knowing that you have taken our sins away. And help this gift of forgiveness to instill a right reverence and holy fear in our hearts so that we continually look to you and you alone for our goodness and blessing. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in the true faith to life everlasting. We rise.